Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, a year-end special for you. In the kick, we will round up the top five running stories of the year from our website. I can promise you that there will be some surprises. But first, our very first New Year New You Roundtable. We asked listeners and readers to send us questions about their 2017 running goals. And as promised, we are devoting this entire episode to answering those queries. We hope the discussion gets you motivated to get out there and do something great this year. Thanks for joining us. Okay, for this year's final episode of the Runner's World Show, we decided that it would be a good idea to reassemble the roundtable panel who recorded the marathon training roundtable back in September. That was episode number 21 for any marathoners who may not have heard that episode and want to go back and check it out. So I'm joined again by Tish Hamilton, executive editor of Runner's World. Hey, Tish. Hi, David. And Bart Yasso, our chief running officer, a.k.a. the mayor of running. How's it going, Bart? It's going well, David. Glad to be here. And also Bud Coates, who is the fitness director here at Rodale, Inc., and the training brains behind Runner's World's training business. How's it going, Coach Coates? Hey, that sounds great. Uh, (laughs) Covered my motivational aspect. (laughs) So every year at the end of the year, we do something in the magazine that's called New Year, New You. Uh, And it is by far our most enduringly popular franchise in the magazine. And obviously, it's partly because of the whole New Year's resolution thing, right? When people are rolling into uh, the month of January every year, they have a tendency to look forward and want to set new goals and achieve new things and basically just try to get better. Sometimes it's one thing and sometimes it's a whole host of things. And we give lots of advice about that in the magazine. And for the first time, we are going to give as much advice as we can in this audio format here on the Runner's World Show. And the way that we're going to do that primarily is by answering questions directly from listeners. We solicited questions from our listeners on our website. We mentioned this on past episodes of the show. And we did a Facebook Live asking for questions. And we got dozens of really great questions We may not have time to get to all of them here, but we will do our best. And thanks to every one of you who sent questions in, however you did it. And I think we should kick off with one that just gets right to the point. And it's from a listener named Lori Reiner. I'm hoping I'm saying her last name right. And she says it pretty plainly. I've lost my motivation. What's the best way to get it back? Tish, I'll start with you. Well, I think to get motivated you have to be first off honest with yourself about what motivates you so do you need an external motivator a classic one for runners of course is a race and putting a race on a calendar gives you a reason to to get out there and do your training every day especially if it's out you know in april and you need to build up to it um uh for people who don't race you've got to figure out something else that that might motivate you and one of my favorite motivation tips is from our contributor Dimity McDowell Davis who got a jar and put a dollar in the jar for every single mile she ran 
And then this is the best part. She's got two small children at home. And she, you know, of course, like any mom, you, you always out buying things for your kids. And she said, when this jar gets full after the end of X number of months, I'm going to um, spend that money on myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she saved up a bunch of money and went to anthropology and got herself some cute jeans and a cute top. I love that motivator. That is an awesome tip. And readers of the magazines, close readers may remember that we actually shot a photo of that concept and use it as the opening page of our personal best section um, earlier this year. That is a great tip. Um, what about internal motivation, Bart, right? Yeah. Tish mentioned external and, and picking a race and having other tricks is a great way to do it. Other people are motivated by, by other things inside, right? Yeah, you know... I- we all lose motivation at some point in our running career, you know, doing this 40 plus years. I've had some motivation downtime, you know, like how do I get psyched up to get out there and be happy on the roads and uh, set a running goal and running books have always done it for me. I'll use Matt Long's as a great example called The Long Run. Uh, David, the book you worked on, Going Long, as a great example, an anthology of all the uh Best stories in runner's world. So, you know, you don't even have to read a whole book. Like, going long, you just read a chapter, and then I'm fired up to go out and run. And it gets tough this time of year when it's rainy, cold. uh, It's not that inviting (laughs) to head out the door. More inviting to fire up a cup of coffee and sit in my hot tub. But I got to get out there. So uh, these books always have worked for me. I I was actually just going to touch on that. It's no coincidence that I think – Lots of people tend to have their motivation wane at the end of the year, right? It's getting dark a little bit earlier. It's pretty dark when you wake up in the morning. Depending on where you live, it can be pretty cold and nasty out there. It's a hard time to to train seriously for something. But what do you tell people? How do you help people get through that? How do you advise them to either overcome that or uh, just focus on on something else, whether it's a specific race goal, perhaps, or something else that is going to tap into their internal motivation? I think the, uh, the easiest thing to do is, is to share what you have in mind um, with a few other people, whether it's <laughs> your family, your friends, your coworkers, so that, you know, um, at some point during the day, they're going to ask you, hey, did you get out for your run this morning? And you'd rather say yes than no. Um, so it's just setting yourself up to to um, be able to you know respond to those questions the the correct way. The other thing is is find a companion. Um, you know, there's nothing better than than sharing your run in the morning or late in the evening with one or two other people. And and what you often find out is that no one in that run really wanted to go out and run, but they're there because. The other ones, you know, the other two or three people were going to be there and, and you were going to be the one that let them down. So be accountable, right? Exactly. I, I laughed a minute ago because I know from experience that it's one thing to think of a goal and and say that, okay, I, I think I want to do this. And it's another thing to say that out loud, either to people that you know, people in your family, Put it out on social media. Once you do that, it is out hmm. there, and it's at a different level. And Tish, I know you're super careful about that, and I've gotten very careful about that as well. T- talk about how you feel about your own personal goals and where that line is between something that you want to keep to yourself and something that you want to tell people about and how that either comes with accountability or doesn't and how it sort of changes your motivation. 
Well, you know, of course, we work here at Runner's World, which puts us on a, on a kind of a public stage. And I, I don't like training in public because uh, for me, you know, I, I, I need the space to be sure that I can evaluate my own fitness um, from my own body's health point of view versus what uh, the, the broader world might expect from a Runner's World editor. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I heard Kara Goucher speak once, and she they, she and her husband Adam Goucher are very big into saying it out loud, like make say your goal out loud, and 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 that makes it real. And I think that's really it is a terrific motivational tool. Um, uh, but you know, you also have to give yourself permission um, to you know if it's not happening, not to push yourself to do something that's unrealistic. Yeah. Well, just one other trick that I'll add, and it's pretty simple, and we advise people to do this all the time and it's to just keep a log and and you don't have to write you know 500 words every time you sit down and log something but whatever the goal is maybe the goal is to uh, have a running streak maybe it's to run a certain number of miles per week even if it's you know five or ten miles a week maybe it's a race goal that you need to embrace a training plan to reach I find that if I keep track every day it comes to a point maybe it's couple weeks, maybe it's a month or two months into it, when I feel like I've invested into this and I can look back and look at all this time that I put in and look at all these miles that I've run. And I find that really motivating. Okay. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, specific race goals because we got a lot of questions about this. Um, And here's one from a listener and probably not going to pronounce this name correctly either, but Kia Nanana Tuu, who says, I'm running my first Disney challenge in January. The Disney challenge, one of the most popular in terms of growth over the past few years, certainly in running. Saturday is the 10K and Sunday is the half marathon. What can I do to keep my legs from being sore? (laughs) Um, And of course, there are different levels of, of the Disney challenge. You know, there's the dopey challenge where you do even more than two races. Um, and Bart, I'm looking at you because I know yeah. you have uh, talked to so many runners about about doing this. What What's your advice? Sure. And of course, Bud has done the dopey challenge, the four races right. in four days. And I, I've done a lot of these multi-races. The key is what you're going to do on Saturday, which uh, she's going to start off with the 10K. And uh, that really should just be what I would call a shakeout run. You know, we do these shakeout runs all the time, which means just shake out the nerves and the cobwebs and run at an easy pace. If you do that in the first race, you'll be ready for the second part on Sunday. Uh, if you if you run too quickly on Saturday, you will really pay on Sunday. And then when you finish on Saturday, it's what you do in that 20 to 30-minute window after you finish to hide, rehydrate, get a little food. Uh, nice stretch, but that window is key in that 20 to 30 minutes after you finish that race on Saturday, so you're ready for Sunday. But easy pace on Saturday is the key. So, Bud, these multi-event races probably are pretty high on the list of lots of our listeners' goals. Absolutely. There's so many of them out there. Disney is you know, perhaps the biggest and best-known one. Um, so having having done the dopey yourself, what have you learned about these multi-distance events and how to handle them best. Well, I agree with Bart completely. You have to be careful on on those the the first day or the first couple of days of of the multi-day events. 
And um, what I've done and what I've coached uh, most of the people that we've worked with to do is kind of determine ahead of time what your comfortable pace is for that final race, whether it's the half marathon, if, if it's a two-day 10K and half marathon event, or if it's the dopey where you're running a 5K, then a 10K, then a half, and then a marathon, determine what a comfortable marathon pace would be for you. And quite honestly, that's probably going to be the pace you've been doing your long runs at. And then go into each race, um, each event, the 5K and 10K, with the, the mindset that that's the pace you're going to run. So in the 5K, that's, that's pretty easy. That's your shakeout run, um, which, you know, is no big deal. Most of us have done those types of runs before our marathons. The second day, you know, for the dopey is the 10K. And if you look at it the same way, um, you know, it's the pace I could, I could run a marathon comfortably at. Um, you know, you've now run two days in a row and the 10K isn't really going to take much out of you. Um, but again, um, you may not be used to running two days in a row uh, and let alone the fact that now you're going to be running three days in a row when you, when you get up the next morning. So you start the half marathon um, again at that with the idea that the pace is going to be similar. But now you want might want to like uh, rethink it and say, well, I'm not going to really be too concerned with the pace I want to run the marathon at, I'm going to try to go with the effort. So now, you know, kind of convert over to effort and, um, and do the same thing for the marathon. And, you know, you can always, you can always ease back um, in these events. The biggest, uh, most important thing is, is that if you start out under control or you reassess and you back down in effort a little bit or pace, you can finish and, and be very comfortable. And, and, you know, the gratitude of, of doing the multi-day event is, is there. In between, um, I'm I'm more of a hot tub guy than an ice bath guy, so I recommend you know once you get back to the hotel, if it if the hotel has a hot tub, get in there for five or ten minutes, then go back to your room, lay on your back with your feet up against the wall, elevate your legs, you know help the blood flow return, uh, hydrate as well as you can, and then um, you may want to consider some compression socks. I'm always amazed how many runners I meet who are doing their first marathon ever as part of one of these challenges. Um, good idea? Good good idea to be a first-time marathoner as part of a Disney challenge or a Dopey challenge? What do you think, Tish? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like nuts to me, but <laughs> I'm sure people have a lot of fun with it. What I want to add to what these guys are saying is to reiterate Bart's point about the food um, and you, the nutrition in between these things is so critical. And you are in a theme park, and you are, you know, there's, you're so tempted by all the fun things to eat, like ice cream and cotton candy and popcorn and all that good stuff. I, I want to make sure that everybody gets some protein in, in their recovery meal um, uh, as, you know, as soon as possible uh, after finishing. You know, a, a combination of carbs, but a little bit of protein in there, too. It's going to help, help you feel better. And, you know, I mean, yes, you're having fun during these multi-day events, but just be careful about um, eating well and as healthfully as possible. It's going to make you feel better during each event. Right. Okay. Yeah. Another very common goal. Uh, in a question from James Lee. He says, I want to BQ. BQ, of course, stands for Boston Qualifier. I'm 45, started running in 2013, and have already taken 45 minutes off my marathon time. Wow. I have a 4.16.20 PR, and to BQ, I need to run under 3.25. Is this a realistic goal? And then lastly, 
and actually I want to start with this broader question, then we'll circle back to whether that BQ is realistic for James. How do I set realistic goals? Which is such a good question and definitely worth some thought at the beginning of the year and worth uh, some wisdom here from you guys. Bud, what do you think? What's the best way to set realistic goals for yourself? Well, I think the the easiest way um, is to take into consideration some of your shorter races, whether it's a 5K or a 10K. Um, we have a great calculator um, at Runner's World that once you input the times for a 5K or a 10K, it gives you an idea of what you're capable of running for the half marathon or the marathon. So it gives you a realistic idea of where your present fitness is right now and what you could legitimately train for in the next three to four months. In in uh, James's case, I'd say he needs um, to take a step in, at least one step in between where he's at right now and a BQ because that's a 50-minute PR. And the fact that he, you know, James improved 45 minutes, that's phenomenal. That's almost two minutes a mile. And, uh, you know, wouldn't we all like that? But um, it, it's it's a bit unrealistic to think that, well, it's just going to continue that way. It's not a straight-line graph. So, um, you know, maybe look at breaking four hours uh, the next time or maybe 350 and then uh, re- understanding the work it took to do that and then move on. Would it be maybe better to think on a longer horizon than than just year for for somebody who wants to take another 50 minutes off a off a marathon PR maybe think about even if you don't BQ in 2017 you know you work toward it and maybe you get it the year after yeah um you know to take almost an hour off your time is going to be very difficult so long term thinking is really the way to go Okay, and that race race calculator is a great tool. We recently revamped it. It's on our website. Um, and James, if you're listening, you know you can plug in your most recent 5K or 10K, uh, and that will give you some indication of you know what a realistic time in a marathon might be. You know this year for you. What about what about non race specific goals, Bart? What about more general? goals? What's the best way to think about something that's realistic? Yeah, well, you know, I agree with what Bud said. You've got, you got to prove to yourself what you're capable of doing by running these shorter races, and then it becomes realistic. You know, I'm sure our calculator will say that James has to run a half about 130, because I would say, well, first off, if his BQ is 325, it's actually like 321, 22 right. to actually make it into Boston. Right. There's with BQing that. and there's actually and getting there's a actually, bit. Right. Yeah. So, Two different things. So when I looked at I looked at James' question, I thought, okay, he's got to be comfortably running about a one thirty three half marathon. That'll that'll prove to him that his goal is realistic, and then you go out and accomplish that. But you got to prove to yourself. If you don't prove it to yourself, you know, you could stare at calculators and and all these things, but you have to prove it. And most runners I find they do they they accomplish a lot more than I think possible. So you have to think big. Uh, think that you can do these things, but then go out and prove to yourself that you can do it. And, you know, there's no shortcuts in running. It's the amount of miles you put in, the time on your feet, but you have to do it properly so you don't run into injuries. You just can't pile on the miles and, and try to go for these times. I think Bud made a great suggestion. You know, James breaks four hours. Take those little strides first, which make long strides long term. And right. think long term. I mean, that's the key. Is he trying to BQ right now or you know, a year, year and a half from now. Incremental progress. Yeah. All right. So, Tish, 
it, it's not a race-related goal, but it is a quantifiable goal, and it is also very, very common uh, among our readers and listeners, and it has to do with weight loss. Most people want to lose a few pounds this time of year. Maybe it's two or three, maybe it's five, maybe it's more than that. Maybe some lots of people out there want to lose you know, 15, 25 pounds or more. What's a realistic way to think about a weight loss goal for yourself? Uh, you're asking somebody who gained six pounds over the past few months. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask Bud the same thing. I'm right there with you. <laughs> so, okay. That, uh, this is another thing that you have to think about long term and not like, you know, a quick fix, right? So you have to, and you have to be honest with yourself and say, you know, uh, and look at how much you're eating. And the easiest way to do that is to either use an app that tracks how much you're eating or a simple food log will do it. And you'll find things like, you know, are you eating ice cream every night for dessert? Are you having two glasses of wine instead of one? And you uncover these, these you know, uh, extra calories that you're probably eating that you don't need. So you've got to, that's sort of your first line of defense is cutting out stuff that, that you don't actually really need for your hunger. Um, and, and thinking about it, you know, thinking about it long term and, and gradually. And, and, you know, it can be frustrating when you only see like one pound come off in a week, but that's actually pretty darn good and it's better than going up. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that I want to talk about on this, and, and there's been a lot of uh, research about this lately, a lot of stories in the media about this, and a lot of our listeners probably are going to look to maybe lose a few pounds while incorporating running into this goal, right? And it's this pretty ironic and frustrating dynamic that sometimes when you start a running routine, you don't lose weight. In fact, some people gain weight. What is up with that? Bud. <laughs> Uh, well, I think I think there's a couple things that that um, create that situation, and and the first one is reward. Um, people start a running program, and they aren't really um, clear on how many calories are burned in a mile, so there tends to be more reward than there is effort. Typically, the rule of thumb is about, what, 100 calories for every mile that you run? Right, 100 to 115 calories a mile um, for, every, for every mile you run. Now, if you're walking and running, you're going to take uh, decrease that to about 85 calories a mile. So, um, you know, you can't, you can't store up on the, the energy replacement bars or the high-calorie meals and so on and so forth just because, oh, I ran today. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can eat anything I want. You, you just really can't do that. Um, and then the other thing is is that you want to, like, like Tish was talking about, you want to pay attention to what you're doing in between. Many of us don't pay attention to that snack on the counter. So, um, again, it's, it's really a, you need to understand what the running is doing as far as increasing calorie burn and then not overestimating what you can return in calories because of that. Right. Okay. I want to swing back to some specific goals and some specific questions. As I said, we did a whole episode about marathon training in episode number 21. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about marathons here, uh, but do want to talk about the most common race distance out there, which is the the 5K. There's a great question here um, from Chris Chrisup. What is the best workout 
to run a faster 5K this year. I seem to break down in between miles two and three. But you've trained hundreds, if not thousands of people to run 5Ks, and and I'm sure most of them or some of them wanted to run faster than they did before. You know, if someone came to you and said, I want to take a couple minutes off my 5K time, give me a training plan, what's going to be the key workout in that plan? Yeah, I think the, there, there's, I'm going to give you two answers to that. Um, the key workout would be to run some repeat miles um, and to determine the pace of those repeat miles, you would take the average mile pace of your, your most recent or your fastest 5K over the last couple of weeks to, to two months. Um, in reading, you know, what Chris is saying, he's, he's doing pretty good through two miles. So basically, he's starting to race at a pace he can run two miles. But he's trying to run, you know, three miles, which is, you know, another 50%. So... Um, break down that total time. So, um, for instance, if if you wanted to run seven minute pace, which is around twenty one forty five, and he ended up running twenty three minutes, um, his uh, his average pace is probably around seven fifteen seven seven twenty pace. Um, so to do repeat miles at that seven twenty pace, so he becomes strong at the pace, and he learns what that pace feels like. So then going into the race, he runs that first mile at that 7.15, 7.20 pace and then can run stronger the second and third mile. He's not overstepping his fitness level at that time. So mile repeats, I think, are very good. Um, a recovery of around a quarter mile to as much as 800 meters, two laps on the track would be fine. It's more just really getting comfortable and understanding what that 715 to 720 pace feels like so that he's not setting himself up and running too fast too early in the 5K. That's such a good point. I love that advice in in part because it touches on something that I think a lot of runners don't quite understand. And I know that I have not done a great job in my running career at this, which is have a goal but also reverse engineer, work backward from that goal and think about the paces at which you will do your workouts. I think a lot of people have a goal, whether it's, you know, I want to run a 330 marathon, whatever it is, but it's not quite as common to then go, okay, if I want to run a 330 marathon, that means I need to run a certain pace for that race. And that means I should be doing my training runs, whether they're speed workouts or long runs, at a pace that is going to prepare me for that race pace. That seems like a perhaps an opportunity for for Chris and other runners as a way to really train it more specifically and more properly for goals. But Tish, there's one other thing that Chris might benefit from, and it has nothing to do with the workout, and it has more to do with race day. Another mistake I've made many, many times. You know, I show up, I want to run a fast 5K or a fast 10K, and I don't warm up properly, you know? So, you know, it takes me a mile to even get to the point where I'm warm and I'm running optimally, but then a third of my race is over, you know? What's the best way to be ready to run a fast 5K on the day? So um, what I do is get to the course early and um, I run, you know, it, it probably more than Bud Coats would like me to, two miles um, of the course and some even run the whole course in reverse uh, really slowly to get my body warmed up. Now, of course, I'm used to a lot of miles, so so that's not a big deal for me. 
Um, so I would say, you know, depending on how much weekly mileage he does, get to the course early, do some uh, gentle warm-up running. Okay, then you also want to pump your, your heart up um, a little bit. So you might want to do some dynamic stretches, so swinging your legs back and forth, swinging your legs side to side, um, maybe do some skips if that's if you've done that in training. Don't try it the first time on the race day. And then also some strides, so some, uh, uh, you know, running from whatever, a tree to a tree, you know, picking up the pace a little bit as close to the start time as you can do that. You know, it depends on the size of the race and how crowded it is. Sometimes you can just run up and back from the start line if it's not too big, too big of a race. So you get, you're getting your, your, all your muscles ready to go and ready to fire uh, fast. Right. Okay. So the, the 5K is the, the most popular race distance, but as we all know, the biggest growth in running has been in the half marathon over the past you know, five or 10 years. Great question here from Isha Aurora. How much should I run during the week if I am preparing for a half in April? And when should I start my training? What do you think, Bart? Yeah, start your training now. <laughs> I mean, we, we Isha, always- You should be running at this moment. <laughs> yeah, we always need to be training, but it is, so half marathon, I, we suggest 12-week specific training program to lead up, but you go into that program with a base and you're already running, and then you follow this 12 weeks to build up to that specific race. Uh, but I think that's the, a mistake runners make. They think when there's downtime, they can really chill out, and you really have to work on base. You can do slow running, but you have to be out there. But the weekly mileage is is should be on the kind of base you already have, so it's kind of hard to throw just a number out there. What's the longest long run that you think is optimal for a half marathon? For a half marathon, I you can get it get up to twelve miles, and uh, you know just it should be get at a comfortable pace. I would do a negative split style, which means running the second half of the twelve mile run faster than the first half, and then close really strong. If you're doing that, then you're going to be going to prove to yourself that you're ready to run this half marathon and run it at a at a good pace, you know, a faster pace than what you were training because you're going to pin on that bib number and have all the other runners to to run with and there's magic in that bib number. You pin that thing on, you run faster than you do in training. Right. Isha, if she starts a plan in January, you know, we don't know when this half marathon is in April. But, you know, if she gets on a 12-week plan, there's definitely enough time for her to train properly for a half marathon in April, right, if she hasn't formally started uh, training with a plan, bud? Oh, sure. Um, you know, again, um, we have plans that are between 10 and 12 weeks that will prepare you for a half marathon related to, you know, what your your present fitness level is now. And, again, um, related to maybe what, what some of your 5K times are leading into it, and that's that's how you can choose your plan. And what I would recommend is is taking a look at what those plans require now, um, you know, maybe four to five weeks away from when you actually have to start training, and then work yourself up so that your your mileage is within about sixty percent of what that first week is going to look like. Eighty uh, percent would be a little bit better, but um, you know you want to be careful not to increase your mileage too much. So, you know, if you take a look at the number of days a week this plan is going to require, you might want to run, you know, that number of days a week or that number of days minus one and then um, do two-thirds of what each, you know, work up to two-thirds of what each one of those mileage days represents so that when that 
that first week of official training starts, you're, you're into a rhythm, you're running you know, the appropriate days a week, and you're ready to go. All right, a couple things there I think we should spend another minute on. You're talking about base building, right? That, yeah, that's exactly what that would be. So what is a good base that we would advise someone to have in place before they embark on a you know, serious plan for really any race distance? But let's just, let's say half here. Do you think someone should be regularly running a certain number of miles for a certain number of weeks before they really begin training? It's a it's a really relative question to you know what level the athlete the runner is at at the present time. Um, it would be nice if you could be running for you know three to four maybe even five weeks prior to serious training, and during that three to four weeks, if you're a beginning or intermediate runner, you're probably just going to be as I said increasing your mileage to the point where you're about sixty to eighty percent of what it's going to require for you to start training. Okay. And then you also touched on increasing your mileage week to week. Right. What's a good rule of thumb for a realistic amount to to do that, to increase from one week to the next? There's an old rule of thumb of 10%, but quite honestly, it's it's probably a little low. If you increased every other run by a mile, um, then you can, you know, you can increase two to five miles a week. Um, but again, um, you know, with the idea that you really only want to be at 60, 80 to 80 percent of what you need to be ready for that first week of training. So if you are, are a beginning runner or intermediate level runner, don't overdo it in, in your preparation for training, because it, like Bart said previously, staying healthy is the number one goal you want to accomplish on the way to training for the half, but also completing the half. Okay, now let's stretch it out even farther. Question here from Penny Williams. And Tish, I'll look to you first. I'm a marathoner who is contemplating running a 50K or 50 miler in 2017. I would love to hear about how to make that transition to an ultra, some race suggestions and overall advice for running an ultra, especially nutrition. Tish, you've run, all three of you guys have run ultras before. Tish, you've run a bunch of them. How should Penny approach this? Thanks for asking me. I love this question. Um, so I think I've, I've run, have run, uh, 50 milers a few times. And when I did them, I followed a marathon training plan and I didn't do a whole lot more, um, which sounds crazy. Um, but I think it's uh, an ultra is a really doable goal for anybody who's done several marathons already. I wouldn't jump right from a marathon to an ultra. Um, what I did do more of was this, I, uh, ran a little bit slower, okay, on my long runs. I went out with a group of friends who who um, don't push my pace, but they're a little bit slower than my natural pace, which was great because it was very fun and social. Um, and so my longer runs would take longer. It would take more like four hours to do a 20-miler. That was my pace back in, back in those days. Um, or four and a half hours, so I'd spend more time on my feet. The other thing I would do differently is add a second run. So if I do my long runs on a Saturday, I'd make sure to get out on a Sunday. And I wasn't running crazy mileage on Sunday, but I'd do at least an hour run on Sunday so that it, it you know, helps you get used to running on tired legs. Um, and I stretched my marathon training out longer. So I took a 16-week training plan and made it for 20 weeks. So it doesn't really take that much more than marathon training to do an ultra. You're going to 
back off a lot during the event. You know, the ultra runners always say, start slow and back off. Um, so you have to really <laughs> throw away this idea of running running fast, which is part of the appeal of the ultra, especially for, for you know, um, uh, serial marathoners. It's like, okay, yay, we don't have to worry about BQing, for instance. Right. Um, now, nutrition is another part of the puzzle, and uh, you've got to figure out what works for you in a 50K or a 50-miler. You're going to probably want to take in something more than just a sports drink like Gatorade. Um, so is that going to be choose? I actually like bagels, believe it or not. I would take a bagel and cut them into small bits and then put a little bit of peanut butter on it because I could just – that was something I could tolerate. Um, pretzels, uh, you know – it's real food. I, I prefer real food. And again, your training is going to be where you experiment with this, but you're going to want to get used to that because you are going to need it for, you know, a 50-miler could take you 10, 11, 12 hours. So it's a long time to be out there without eating anything. Yeah. You guys have any ultra advice? Oh, yeah. I, I love this question because uh, I agree with Tish. I mean, you really train like a marathoner, and 50 miles was my favorite distance to race. I absolutely loved 50 miles. I can close the break in six hours. I was six hours and 11 seconds. Oh, man. Which is like 720 per mile or something wow. like that for 50 miles. Wow. So I, I actually like, I was good at it and I liked that distance. But it's all the, you know, first off, when you go into the ultra, you got, are you doing trails or are you doing a road race? You know, if it is on the trail, you got to train on the trail the best you can. But you don't always train on the trail. When you go out on the roads, you you do faster cadence and a faster per mile run because you're on the road. So you got to mix them up. Go on the trail so you're used to running on the trails, but then go back to the road so you keep that leg speed that you need on race day. But, uh, you know, that the first ultra should just be about finishing, and then you really learn this ultra thing. And, and, and Tish said it. I mean, nutrition is everything. You have to and also train carrying water bottles, a backpack, a a waste pack, whatever you're going to use on race day, you should have with you every run. So it feels like just like putting on your socks. It's just so natural to have because uh, if you only do it on race day, it feels awkward. Hmm. Uh, so I would always have, you know, carry bottles with me when I would do any of the longer runs. And then when I did it on race day, it just felt natural. I I totally agree. I think um, one of the things that that we lose sometimes, even training for the marathon, is we don't make those long runs dress rehearsals of the actual event. So it's really important, and it's more important with the the ultras because, um, as Tish had had suggested, you need to really understand what nourishment is going to work well with you. Uh, w what might be really um, advantageous is to find out where the aid stations are going to be in that 50-miler and then figure out about, you know, how you can divide your long run into those increments. So if there are three aid stations, divide your long run into three aid stations, uh, you know, ha have opportunities for three aid stations. Nibble on a couple different options, whether it's um, my favorite was just, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or peanut butter and jelly Ritz crackers. And then if you find something that's that's particularly comfortable, don't don't bail out. Take that with you and and try to get your bag placed at the aid station. Don't just depend on what they have to offer. And then, you know, what what Bart was talking about is um know what the course is going to be like. So if it's if it's a very runnable trail like a rails to trail um um type thing, 
that's that's you know not bad. That's pretty pretty doable for just about anybody. But if it's going to be some tough single track, make sure you get some of those experiences on the run in your training because your pace is going to slow down. You're going to be stepping differently every time you put your foot down, and getting used to that ahead of time is really important. All right, great advice. I've always been totally intimidated by the idea of running 50K or 50 miles, but now that I realize that it's really mostly about eating, I'm very good at that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I maybe I have one of these in my future after all. Uh, okay, I want to take it inside. Very common this time of year, especially for people who live in cold climates, to spend a few more hours per week in the gym, right? Doing some cross training, preparing themselves for the nicer weather in the spring. Great question here from Jason Eisenhower. When I don't have time to go to the gym, is there a quick home exercise I can do to build strength? Yes, definitely. There's lots of ways that you can build strength uh, at home without even needing dumbbells. Um, and and there are tons of great workouts at runnersworld.com. Um, but the basic idea is you want to work um, your quads and your glutes. So you do that with squats and lunges. And I mean, I, you might feel silly, but I, what I do is march around my house taking deep lunges um, and, and squats. You can do those with a dumbbell or without. Uh, you want to also do some uh, um, work on your upper body. You can do that with push-ups. You can hold planks. Uh, so there's all kinds of things you can do in your own home without any, any weights. Um. <laughs> to, to add on to that, um, you know, if, you, if you're not really sure or comfortable how to do a squat, just find a, a section of wall that you can back up next to, um, step about a half a step away, you know, two feet maybe from the wall with your feet, and then uh, just slide down the wall so that your knees are at about 90 degrees and then slide back up. It's a great way to do a workout for your glutes and your quads, and you don't have to worry about balance and going a little bit too far and aggravating the knees. And then, you know, another great tool that you have in your house, I'm sure somewhere, is a set of stairs. And uh, I've, I've often suggested and done myself, um, you know, stair workouts, just stand at the bottom of the stairs, use the first two steps, Step up onto the first step, then onto the second step, and then back down to the floor again, up and down two steps. You're working both legs. You're working the quads. Um, it's a great way to tighten up your stride because the stairs are going to be or the steps are going to be somewhat close together. But you can get a great aerobic workout using uh, just a couple stairs in your house. And then you know there's the old tried and true. You know some push-ups and sit-ups. And a couple of different core exercises with with a, uh, either elbow planks or hand planks are great. Um, you can definitely do yourself in um, without leaving leaving the house. All right. So, Bud, follow up question from Vic Morales: How important is strength training? How many times a week should we integrate strength training into our running routines? I I've always uh, thought that strength training was very important. Uh, early in my career, it, it tended to be more machine-related than multifunctional. I think multifunctional training, where you're moving the body in, in you know, um, a number of different directions, is, is probably the most important thing to do. So, so yes, um, strength training is huge. Um, two to three days a week. Two is probably fine if you're in full training. Do it on your easy day or your moderate day. Don't try to combine it with a long run or a quality run, 
you're going in with the mindset that you want this program to advance your ability to run well. So it's not so much strength as it is repetition and good form. So what's a ballpark for a number of repetitions that, that runners should look for? Um, ideally, you, right around the 12 repetition range. And, and most trainers will say, well, we want to work within 8 to 12. What I found is if you tell a, a, a runner who's motivated to lift something eight times as opposed to 12, they'll lift as much weight as they can possibly lift for eight repetitions. When you get to 12, they've got to back down in that weight a little bit. And even going as far as 15 repetitions is not bad. All right. I love this question from Doug Beitzer, who says, I love my GPS watch, but after some injuries, I'm finding that focusing on how I'm feeling is more important than pace. How do you balance paying attention to your watch and just going out for a relaxed run? Coach Coates. All right. Well, this is my favorite topic. <laughs> I, uh, I I really do believe a lot in effort-based training, um, not paying all that much attention to the watch and what the pace is, but paying more attention to your breathing. And, there, and the reason for it is, is that every day is different. Um, some days you feel great, some days you don't. The other part of that is, too, is... is environmentally each day is different. It could be cold and uh, windy. It could be really hot and humid. And those are going to um, affect your efficiency while you're out there for a run. All you really have to do is know what you're supposed to do for the particular day and, and that workout. If it's an easy day and you're, you're only supposed to run 20 to 30 minutes, run whatever pace you can to make it an easy day. If it's a cool, crisp morning, 45, to 45 degrees, there's no wind and no humidity, that easy pace is going to be quicker than if it's 85 degrees and very humid. So, you know, effort is is the key. And an interesting side note to that, sometimes paying attention to the way you feel can actually enhance your performance. I, I ran a marathon, this is several years ago, and it was in the middle of a string of frustrating marathons where I was trying to run a certain time, trying to BQ, and was basically looking at my watch several times every mile, constantly doing math in my head, and, you know, was kind of bonking at the ends of these races. And I decided to run the Big Sur Marathon one year. I would take my watch off entirely and just run by feel and enjoy it. And it was the most consistent pace I've ever had in any marathon. It wasn't a super fast time. I wasn't trying to run fast. But it was amazing how... I just naturally settled into a pace that was unbelievably consistent for 26 miles, more consistent than I probably could have been if I had been, you know, looking at my splits and, and calculating times in my head. Yeah, David, I, it, but you ran by feel. That's what right. you were doing. You were listening to your body because you didn't have these outside looking at mile splits on your watch and, and everything getting in your head. And that's where I think people make the mistake. They're what I call a slave to the watch or the GPS. And you can't do that. And that's why it leads to, you know, also I see Doug's uses that injury word in the, in this question. And I think that's where it comes from. People always want to improve on every workout they do or every run they do. And you can't do that. You know, as Bud said, some days it's just you're just not up for Your body's not up for it. And the day, the high humidity or wind or whatever it is dictates that you should run slower. So if you're going by feel, you're much better off. Probably one of the most common mistakes that runners make is not doing their easy runs easy. 
Right. Not just easy it, enough, but not doing it easy at all. They get out there, and before they know it, hey, I feel pretty good. And, you know, if I push it, that's good for my training, right? I'm getting faster. I'm getting stronger. And not necessarily over the course of a long-term plan. Yeah, David, you are exactly right. The biggest mistake is we do not run an easy enough pace on the recovery days so that you can run faster on the quality days, those days you're doing the speed work, the hill workout, the tempo runs. If you run slower on those easy days, you will run faster on those faster days. But it's counterintuitive to say to a runner, if you run slower, you will become faster. Everyone just looks at you right. like, this guy's crazy. But it is true. And, you know, one other thing you can do on those easy days is is uh, promote running. Um, you know, help somebody else get started. Uh, help a beginner. Uh, they're going to, for you, it's going to be an easy three miles for them it might be the longest they've ever run, but you're helping them get out the door and p- perhaps learn a new course, uh, enjoy their running, and they're helping you by holding you back from going too fast on that easy day. Great segue, Bud, to another question that I want to make sure we get in from Lally Ka, which is, what can help us new runners with our running form? Running form um, and individuals is like a signature. Uh, you know, you'll see, you know, eight or nine people running together in a group, and they'll, there will literally be eight or nine different styles of running. The most important thing um, for the beginning runner, I think, is, is to, number one, uh, make sure they're not overstriding. And, and really what that means is that you're landing on the ground um, with a lot of impact. And that when you, you, your foot lands on the ground, um, your knee is basically extended. So to, to feel like your, your steps are short or maybe choppy, that is not a bad thing. That's actually a pretty good thing. If you feel as though it's almost an earthquake every time your foot hits the ground, that's, that's where you have to be careful. Um, so number one, um, if you know, just try to make sure you're you're landing somewhat softly. You're landing with your knee slightly bent, um, so that your knee can become a shock absorber. Uh, that's the most important thing. And then after that, you know, a somewhat upright posture from your hips to your shoulders uh, is good. Some people will lean a little bit. Some people um, will be straight up and down. But what you don't want to be is have your or, or do is have your shoulders behind your hips. Um, that that will also lead to overstriding as well. So um, shoulders over your hips or slightly in front of your hips is good. And then the last thing is is that with your arms, you don't want to get too crazy paying attention to your arms. But if they're cross, if your hands are crossing in front of your body, you may want to reach a little bit further forward um, in front of you so that your hands don't cross. We call that um, rocking the baby because um, if if you noticed people that their hands go back and forth across the front of their body. It looks like they're holding and rocking a baby. Um, and then, um, and then you know, just feel good about yourself. Don't worry too much um, after that. A recent episode of the show uh, talked about overstriding and how it can be a culprit with a very common running injury called plantar fasciitis and others. Um, Bart, where, where should our feet be landing to avoid overstriding? Yeah, so it's called nose over toes. Those feet should be coming down under your body weight. That overstride where your 
feet are landing out in front of you and you cause, cause this braking motion and also the shock runs up your legs. And I always suggest to go to a treadmill, especially if you have a mirror in front of your treadmill. And then you can really see your stride and make sure you're not overstriding. And also that you need to be quiet on that treadmill. And then you know you're doing it correctly. Because if you're overstriding, you're going to make that pounding noise on the treadmill. You know, the best runners in the world, it doesn't matter if they're running five-minute pace or six-minute pace or seven-minute pace. When they're on the treadmill, you just hear the mechanics of the treadmill. That's when you're running correctly and running quietly and not overstriding. All right. Such good advice. Thank you, everybody. Although, before we go, I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you guys uh, what one of your big goals is for 2017. Bart, how about you? You know, We, we know you have some, <laughs> some big um, life changes coming in 2017. I'm sure all our listeners yeah. already know about that. Yeah, you know, I actually did set a goal yesterday when I headed out for a run. I was actually able to run six miles in the parkway yesterday at lunchtime, and it felt so good to be out there, and I, I, I just don't get that opportunity that often, and I don't really run that much these days. But I really set a goal to break 130 in the half marathon in 2017. Wow. So I got to get serious about training, but I felt so good the last couple weeks I'm on some different medication for my Lyme disease stuff, and I'm actually able to run, and I actually feel pretty good. So, But I, but I want to do it because I'd like to challenge myself, and I thought it would be a good retirement send-off to myself. Run 129.59 and a half marathon. I love it. Not till Go this big. fall, but I, yeah, but I want to do it. All right. How about you, bud? Well, I had— I know you're coming off an injury. Yeah, yeah. I had some knee surgery, and, uh, you know, it's funny. We talked about motivation uh, earlier on, and, and one of my little bits and pieces of motivation is— the password on my computer is "run soon," um, and uh, every morning I have to I have to type that password in. And, and the way I'm going to run soon is be smart about my physical therapy, be smart about my comeback, uh, make sure I don't gain too much weight during this downtime. And I've already gained a couple pounds, so that's that's getting in the way already. But um, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's different than it was a couple years ago. Um, my goal is to run the shakeout runs with our VIP program, enjoy the camaraderie of the gang, and then eventually get out some uh, for some more runs with my daughter, who's um, run a couple half marathons, and she's got the marathon bug, and it would be really cool if Dad could uh, join her in that training. That is awesome. All right, Tish, uh, g- given what we said earlier, you may not want to really talk about <laughs> any goals that you have. You're, you're <laughs> talking to the non-committal Tish Hamilton over there? So I'm very curious what you're going to say <laughs> right now. I probably should say I'm going to lose the six pounds I gained. <laughs> but I'm not ready to give up ice cream. Um, so I do have a spring marathon on my calendar. I'm not going to tell you which one because that would be public. Um, but here's what I want to do for that. I want to... Um, uh, continue something I started this summer, which was I started running, riding my bike a lot more and uh, doing some laps in the pool with a kickboard. And I took my first yoga class this past week in probably six years. So I want to get to this marathon with running um, as much as I need to run to complete it, but also um, continuing to do all these other cross-training activities to be a fitter all-around person. So I want to continue doing that. That's great. I love that. And 
I'm actually, this doesn't sound new, but uh, I am going to set a goal to finally run my BQ. I turn 50 next year, so I get another five minutes, wow. an opportune that's a, time that's to a big help. take another shot yeah. at this goal. But I am going to commit to training in a different way and, and um, train train harder and train a bit more consistently and more seriously than I have in the past and, and embrace uh, data a bit more um, and see if that see if that helps me out and I'm going to take a shot at this in the spring. So, but more immediately, I love what you said, bud run soon. Um, it's been great spending an hour with you guys, but, uh, it, it's the lunch hour here at runner's world HQ. And, uh, I want to go out on the lunch run. So let, let, let's run soon. Like in a few minutes. How's that sound? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Bart Yasso, bud Coates, Tish Hamilton. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, thank you, David. Been wonderful. We are going to continue doing these roundtables periodically throughout the year on the show, so we welcome your questions anytime. You can send us your training, racing, nutrition, injury prevention, or motivational questions on our Facebook page, Runner's World Audio, by tweeting us at RW Audio, or by emailing us at rwaudio at rodale, that's R-O-D-A-L-E dot com. And if you did miss our Marathon Training Roundtable with Tish, Bart, and Coach Bud, check out Episode 21, Run Your Best Marathon. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek, reporter Kit Fox, and contributing editor Sarah Lorge-Butler. Okay, so we are at the end of the year looking forward to 2017, but we need to look back to the best stuff coming on runnersworld.com this year. Of course, we had to have Kit Fox here with us. Kit, thanks for doing the kick. Thank you so much, Brian. It's just a time to reflect right now. Mm -hmm. What a year. And we had to bring in Sarah Lorge Butler from Eugene calling in on Skype to recap because she's been a part of a lot of these stories. Sarah, thanks for coming in and doing the kick. Again, we've missed you. Ah, It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Brian. Hi, Kit. Hi, Sarah. How's the oatmeal you're eating right now? Hi, Kit. It's good. Three hours behind you guys. You're not watching me. Uh, all's well here. So we've had a lot of great stuff on the website, runnersworld.com, throughout the year. While we can't hit everything in one kick segment, I thought maybe if we put it in the categories, almost like an award show type, I wanted to call it the Kick Awards, or for short, the Kickies. Uh, yes, the second most prestigious award that I know behind the Dundies from yes. the office. But, yes. Um, you know, pretty exclusive club, the Kickies. I yeah, like so it. To get it started, I want to start with a story Sarah knows about, and it's actually a very recent story. We can kind of give it the category of the most talked about story, so a lot of people shared this on social media recently, and it's uh, about a college runner from Michigan State and why she went public with her weight gain over the course of a season or two. Yes, that's right, Brian. We're talking about Rachel Schulist of Michigan State University. In 2014, she led her team to an undefeated season, and she finished fourth at the NCAA cross-country championships. But she was miserably unhappy. Uh, she wasn't really eating. She was thinking about food all the time, and she was just way too thin. Uh, the next year, she got 
a really devastating knee injury that was pretty rare in distance runners and realized, you know, that she needed to make some changes in her life and start taking care of her body more. Mm -hmm. This year she was back at NCAAs and she's 20 pounds heavier. Um, she looks great. She's healthier. She's happier. And she finished 12th at nationals. So she had an important message that she shared on Instagram about how, you know, thinner doesn't necessarily mean faster, at least not for long. Yeah, and it was really the photos, as you mentioned, it was posted on Instagram, and then we had the side-by-side -side photos. So you can see a difference, but people found like a lot to come from just the visuals and that, and then the story on top of it. Yeah, it's really brave for a female college athlete to come out and say, yes, I've gained 20 pounds, and here's how I look, and here's what here are the behaviors that I was engaging in previously and they weren't healthy and here's what I'm doing now. Um, people were just really impressed by her honesty and her bravery. And a lot of readers said that they had experienced similar feelings when they were running competitively, either in high school or in college. And it's an ongoing struggle for a lot of people, their relationship with food. So this is a really important story for us. Yeah, so really an important topic, like you said, and actually coming up, in a future episode of the Runner's World Show, we're going to be kind of conducting a panel discussion on body image and running. So stick with us on that in 2017. So that was the most talked about story of the year, according to the Kickies. Um, but moving on, wanted to have a different type of category, the runner we want to hang out with the most. And Kit, you, you have that one. Yeah, and I got the chance to hang out with him. I consider that, you know, one of the many highlights of my year. And who is this person? Um, his name's Noah Drotti, and we're going to rewind all the way back to the Olympic trials. He was in the 10,000 meters during the U.S. Olympic track trials out in Eugene. And so you have all your big names, um, you know, Galen Rupp, Ben True, mm -hmm. and this guy comes out on the track, it just looks nothing like any of the other distance runners. You know, they're all clean shaven. He looks like typical hipster. Yeah, he's got long hair, he's got a mustache, he's got, you know, shades and a backwards hat. Right. And people just started tweeting, like, who is this? It looks dude? like he came from the crowd. It looks like he looks like he came from a bar. Yeah, <laughs> and, and tell everybody how he did in that race. So he ended up getting last, um, had a really tough race, and you know, I was just curious, like, who is this guy? So we went and got a couple PBRs of course. a couple days after the race and you know, Noah is a story, just like a an amazing story of improvement was a D2 college athlete, graduated, um, wasn't a, you know, a standout or anything, but he's just improved so dramatically over the past few years that, in fact, after the Olympic trials, he came back and he got second in the USATF 10-mile championships and um, had a great result at the Big Sur Half Marathon. So I'm except expecting big things from Noah Girati, but more importantly, I hope to hang out with him again soon. Yeah, maybe we can get him to hang out with us on uh, The Kick Let's next year, 2017. Yeah. Noah Girati, a guest panelist on The Kick. Official invite, great. Noah. We'll have, we'll have the PBR ready. Okay, so moving on, we want to go with the most inspiring story from the year. A lot of that can come from Olympic moments, and this one definitely won out above really all the Olympic moments in a way, despite not being a win or uh, anything like that. But it's uh, sportsmanship wins the hearts after a 5,000-meter mishap. Let's recap that for us, Sarah, if people don't know what we're talking about there. 
Right. We're talking about an American athlete, Abby D'Agostino, who's from Boston, and a New Zealand athlete, Nikki Hamblin. And they were in the first round of the 5,000 meters. Um, There's a first round and a final. And a runner went down in front of them, and Abby tripped over the runner in front of her and actually tore her ACL. And Nikki Hamblin also went down in this whole collision. It was just a big mess. But what people really noticed was the instincts of both the athletes at that moment that they were collapsed, you know, on the track, their Olympic dreams were just disappearing in front of them, and they turned to help each other. I mean, without a second thought, they just stopped to help each other. So Abby turns to help Nikki get up and um, keep moving and finish her race, and then Abby realizes she can't really put any weight on her knee, so Nikki helps her get up, and Abby finishes the last mile on a torn ACL, limping around the track. It was Mm -hmm. unforgettable. And correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but they kind of helped each other across the finish line, too, or at least at the finish line, you know, gave each other a big hug, and the video is just amazing. It's just a great moment. Right. Nikki was able to finish a little bit ahead of Abby. I mean, Abby really was hurting on those last four laps. But when she came in, Nikki was there waiting for her, as was a wheelchair. And they they shared a big hug. And then they shared a huge media tour after this moment. You know, Abby on crutches. Uh, Nikki was able to, she was advanced to the 5,000 meter final. And she was able to run a couple nights later. And Abby was in the stands to watch her. So it was a true Olympic moment, a true moment of sportsmanship. And you couldn't find very many dry eyes when, when people were watching the replay of that. Yeah, as I said at the top, just not everyone's going to do that in a track meet. I mean, in the 10,000 for the men, Mo Farah went down, and no one stopped to help him up when he scuttled to the track. So really a lot of sportsmanship shown in that race. Um, and let's stick to the track in the Olympics. The next Kiki Award is for best comeback, and we'll stick with Sarah. That one goes to U.S. distance running. Big comeback at the Olympics this year. Traditionally, Americans have done really well in the sprints and the jumps at the Olympics, but not so much the distances. This year, distances really held their own, starting with Matt Centrowitz, who took gold in the men's 1,500 meters. It was a slow tactical race, but he led wire to wire in really a brilliant race. Um, there were two steeplechase medalists. Evan Jager won silver in the men's steeplechase, and Emma Coburn won bronze. Uh, in the men's marathon, Galen Rupp took a bronze. In the men's 800 meters, Clayton Murphy came out of nowhere, and he won the bronze medal. He won the NCAA championships in the spring, and he won the Olympic trials in the 800 meters. Uh, and he carried that all the way through to Rio. He barely made the second round of the 800 meters. He only advanced on time, but after that, he got more and more confident and just ran a perfect race to to take the bronze. In the 5,000 meters, you had Paul Chalima winning the silver. That race was not without its controversy. He was initially disqualified and only found out right. about his disqualification live on NBC, but then later he was mm-hmm. reinstated and got to keep his silver. And you also had Jenny Simpson taking the bronze in the women's 1,500 meters. So it was a great track meet for the American distance runners. And really, in all the events that you just mentioned, those medal halls, they, they represent 19% of what was available. So it just shows the huge jump that U.S. made. But what do we really credit that to, do you think, Sarah? Uh, I think USATF and some sports scientists have really started paying attention to those small details. Um, the U.S. athletes had access to a lot of like heat assessments. That was important for Shalane Flanagan and the marathon. Um, they could go to Colorado Springs and have their 
sweat assessed and figure out what, you know, hydrating drinks were best for them. And then in Rio, they had access to some great facilities too. They had, you know, a chef and they had all their meals at this training facility that USATF had refurbished on an old Navy training ground. So really the athletes in Rio were well taken care of and they sort of had every advantage. So Sarah, I do have to disagree a little bit about this, you know, high advanced science that you're talking about, at least in the steeplechase, because I I think that a lot of the credit has to go to this magic hair tie that, um, you know, is one of my favorite small stories from the Olympics, <laughs> which was uh, Evan Jaeger, who rocks a glorious man bun and needs a hair tie to hold it up, wins his medal, and then Emma Coburn is about to go into the finals and realizes that she doesn't have a hair tie, and he passes on that same hair tie, and she gets her medal, so... I'm giving partial credit to the hair tie. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to remember the hair tie. He was still wearing it around his wrist when I met up with him in Rio a couple of days later, and they weren't sure where it was going next, but other elite athletes were trying to sign a list for the hair tie next. Yeah, you got to see it. That's like the biggest achievement of the year, I think, on staff is Sarah got to see the hair tie. I know. It's got mythical, legendary powers. There is video on our website. All right, so I personally was trying to win this award with my now wife, Mara, this year, but we were edged out. Um, Barely. It's the cutest couple, cutest running couple, I should say. Kit, uh, you got to tell us about this duo in a race from earlier this year. Yeah, I just love this story so much. So Kay and Joe O'Regan were both 80 years old, had been married for 50 years, and they were in the 2016 Cork City Marathon in Southern Ireland together. And now... Um, Kay has run 113 marathons, Joe 29, and they just decided to celebrate their anniversary as well as to kind of finish their marathon running career together to run this race together and end holding hands. The picture is just priceless, both huge smiles on their face as they're about to cross the finish line. Um, And they're just... They're an adorable couple. If you talk to them on the phone, uh, Joe just can't help but brag about you, Kay's running. You spoke running. with them, right, Kit? I did. So I did. can you can you give us how he sounded? Uh, an adorable Irish brogue that I don't know I'll be able to <laughs> imitate very well, but, you know, I'm not going to try. But he, <laughs> they're just an adorable couple. And I want to say, Brian, um, I think you and Mora will be in the running in for 50 the, years for the Kiki Awards in 2000. What would that be? 2066. Sure, we'll keep we'll stop running just so we have fresh legs in 50 years, and we'll stage that photo with our hands held. And so stay tuned, everyone. 2066 Kiki Awards will be you know hotly contested. So congratulations to all of our winners of the Kikis. We have nothing to give you, I should say, but. Before we close up, I think we should. We all wanted to go around and just talk about some of the other stories that stood out really quick this year. Kit, do you have a few? Um, one of my favorite moments of the whole year was uh, Mebka Flesgi finishes the Olympic marathon. It's raining and he trips mm-hmm. right at the finish line. Super embarrassing moment, but Meb, being the coolest dude around, does push ups and makes it a really graceful moment. He I always love that. has good finish line moments, whether. It's a win or, you know, he struggled a little bit in the Olympic marathon, but he had a way to kind of like win that moment. And that's what Meb does. And Love you, Meb. He has one final professional year in 2017. And uh, yeah, we'll really look forward to that. Sarah, you I know you had a few. Yeah, I mean, 
some of the people are pushing the limits on what they can do at different ages. We've got Ed Whitlock, the Canadian who turned 85 and broke four hours in the marathon. Um, we've got Bernard Lagat at age 41. I watched him make his fifth Olympic team. That was awesome. Um, Crazy. Yeah, even seeing we had a nice profile on Frank Gagliano, a beloved coach of a bunch of Olympians who's 79. He was promised he'd be able to coach football 55 years ago and then they didn't have a football spot for him so he started coaching track and you know years later he's still at it so that was a lot of fun i'm really surprised you guys didn't talk about my favorite story of the year i worked on it with our video producer derek call um on how to run a marathon as told through the simpsons this was during their recent 600 episode marathon on fxx and uh that story did really well, guys. But we, um, we only cover the important topics. You, you can tell I cover the important topics. And that was Derek. that was definitely in contention to win a Kiki Award, and was barely edged out by Olympians. That was so. there for best comeback. It yeah. was a nominee. Yeah, it was a nominee. So Sarah, thank you for skyping in from Eugene. Um, we'll have to do this more often. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. And Kit, as always, um, it, it was fun to put some uh, categories to the kick. Brian, just wonderful to see you. Uh, great 2016. I'll see you next year. Um, I'm off to go eat an absurd amount of Christmas cookies. So. All right. Sounds great. That's it for this week's show. As always, thanks to all of you who have given us ratings and reviews. They are very helpful to us. I will always remember 2016 as the year that we launched this show, as well as our second podcast, Human Race. A pretty small band of us has worked very hard on these shows and had so much fun connecting with you in this new way. You've all helped us grow with all your great suggestions and, yes, even your complaints, but mostly your support. And we've learned so much in this process, and we are very excited for what 2017 will bring. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. And just a quick heads up, we are taking next week off, but we will be back on January 12th. And we've got a terrific lineup of interviews and informative segments to help you nail whatever goal you're aiming for in the new year. We'll see you then. I hope you all have enjoyed the holidays with your friends and families and hope you have a healthy, happy running year.